นโมตัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะภะคะวะทูอะระหะทูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามสังฆ์ So this is the first Saturday of the month, which means it's the time to reflect on the Dhamma teaching on the calendar, our calendar. Which this year the teachings are by uh, teachings from Ajahn Chah, and the quote for the month of September. Says, only when you understand that which is beyond happiness and suffering will you find peace. Only when you understand that which is beyond happiness and suffering will you find peace. And when I read this teaching, the thing that immediately comes to my mind. Is how important it is to have the goal right. That um, if we don't have somebody like Ajahn Chah, or he didn't have somebody like the Buddha, point out there is that which is beyond happiness and and unhappiness. Then the chances are that we would spend all of our life trying to become happy. I would imagine it's. Well, it seems to me, uh, happiness is um, the thing that's ultimate. In fact, there's uh, if you read the scriptures um, in, in the Pali, Nibbanang Paramang Sukang, uh, liberation is the Paramang Sukang, the ultimate happiness. But uh, in talking about this. Way of describing the ultimate uh, realization, Ajahn Chah would say, "Well, yeah, you've got to put it like that; otherwise, people won't be interested in it. You've got to talk about it as the ultimate happiness, because happiness is all we know. It's the closest approximation you can get to freedom from suffering. Uh, I mean, we talk about the ultimate happiness." Uh, but uh, he was pointing out, and isn't this this verse? He says that. That uh, real peace, real, real, unshakable contentment, well-being, only comes when you understand that which is beyond happiness and unhappiness, happiness and suffering. So, if we don't have a clear idea of the goal, then we're like with anything else in life. If we don't have a clear idea of what we're setting out to do, we can. Waste a lot of energy. We can get very distracted. We can get very lost. You uh, decided uh, you know, this evening. You decided you, you you wanted to go to the monastery, but you weren't really clear about going to the monastery. You just sort of, well, I think I'll go out tonight. And you get in the car, and you know you're going to end up anywhere. You, you want to get to the monastery. You've got to be quite clear. This is where I'm going. Or Whoever decided, I think 
I'll go and climb Ben Nevis. Ben Nevis is, it's the highest, well, the British people call it the highest mountain. It depends on your, your frame of reference. If you're, if you're from Switzerland or you're from New Zealand, it's a, it's a big hill. But uh, for, for the British, it's the highest mountain in this country. And I want to climb Ben Nevis. And here we are, we're in Northumberland, and so, so you set out. Well, if you're really clear that you can't climb Ben Nevis, well, then, you know, you take a map and you pay attention to the road signs and you don't get too distracted because that's what we're going to do. We're going to climb Ben Nevis. But if we don't have a clear concept of the goal, then we can spend our limited amount of energy and a limited amount of time uh, on things that don't really get us where we want to be. And that would be unfortunate. And I think we are all aware, of course, that we, we do have limited time. Um, we don't know how much, how much time we've got, but we know it's limited, and we've only got a limited amount of energy. And so there are some things in life that are more important than others. There are some things that are really important. And if you decide that, that uh, the really most important thing is to be free from suffering, if that's the thing that you find most attractive, if you've had enough of suffering, enough of frustration, enough of disappointment, enough of despair, if we've had enough of that and then we hear this teaching, well, there is this possibility of liberation, well, then we need to have a clear concept of what liberation is. You know, what is liberation? Because a lot of people, even within the Buddhist world, you know, start out trying some meditation techniques. You don't have to try very hard before you can experience quite a bit of happiness, a very intense happiness. And maybe you think, well, this is it. This is, this is the goal. And so we try to get more of that. And it's not necessarily the case that everybody finds it easy, but for some people, they, their propensity is towards cultivating very refined states of happiness. And, but Ajahn Chah pointed out, and the Buddha pointed out, that this is uh, not a worthy goal, that, that if it's conditioned, if it's dependent upon anything, then we can still lose it. And so having a good idea of the goal, mm. contemplating what is it that's really worthy, and in this case, Ajahn Chah is pointing out that, that peace that is unshakable peace, unshakable contentment, a sense of freedom that cannot be compromised in any way is a worthy goal. And it's beyond happiness and unhappiness. And so having this as an idea is very helpful. But it's also important in considering this to, to remember that the idea is not the goal. Because we can get hung up on ideas. You, you can read the scriptures, you can read the Buddhist scriptures, uh, sophisticated and impressive as they are, and, but they're just ideas you know, when you're reading them. Just, they're just ideas. It's like you know, if you're kind of going on about you've got the best ideas, it's like going on and you've got the best place to go for dinner. The idea about the best restaurant, I mean, what's the point of having an idea about the best restaurant? I mean, the point of that is to go there and have a good meal, isn't it? I mean, the, and that's the point. I mean, there's no, there's no point in arguing about who's got the best idea of a restaurant or the best photograph of a restaurant. Yeah. The, the only value in that is do you get to the restaurant and have a good meal? And similarly, uh, the ideas we have of the goal, we do need to be careful 
that we don't cling to these ideas because we are, of course, all programmed to do this. We get off on ideas. Like if you stop and think, where do you find your identity? Well, of course, a big part of it is in the body, but maybe a bigger part of it is in our mind. This is me. I'm as clever as my mind is clever. If I can think good, then I am good. If I can think bright, then I am bright. So we have, we all have a strong, conditioned sense of being identified with our thoughts. So there's a big danger in this that we get these really good thoughts, these really profound thoughts, these these enlightened thoughts, or thoughts about enlightenment. If we mistake them for the goal itself, uh, well, that's. That's like um, that's like getting overly impressed with with a photograph of of a restaurant. You know, it's not the point. So, what is the goal? As Shah is pointing out, the goal here he said is that which is beyond happiness and unhappiness. The goal is is he also talked about that that in which happiness and unhappiness are arriving arising and ceasing. There is that in which happiness and unhappiness can be seen as movement. And the goal is to realize that, to abide as that, in which all states of happiness and unhappiness and anything in between arise and cease. So... Having teachings about this and teachers is uh, very useful. Uh, we can learn from their experience. Somebody was mentioning to me recently, I forget where it was or when it was, but somebody mentioned to me recently, how come the Buddha didn't have a teacher but we're supposed to have teachers? And Well, because the Buddha, actually, when we do the chanting, we talk about the Sama Sam Buddha, perfectly self-enlightened. The Buddha, many lifetimes ago, determined to become the Buddha and spent many lifetimes developing what we call the Barami, the forces of transformation, generosity, integrity, renunciation, determination, honesty, impeccability, equanimity, these uh, paramis, these perfections. The Buddha spent many, many lifetimes accumulating these, cultivating these, perfecting these for the purpose of realization, liberation, for the benefit of all beings. And so it is true that the Buddha, in his last lifetime, did realize complete liberation without somebody telling him the Four Noble Truths. That's true. But for us, that's highly unlikely, almost certainly unlikely. And wherever we're coming from, the fact is that there are these teachings still around and it's wise to pay attention to them. As I'm saying, if you decide you're going to go and climb Ben Nevis, well, then the sensible thing to do is get a road map. And say, well, there's Ben Nevis on there. We go, this is, the, this is the quickest way to get there. And then climbing Ben Nevis, well, I went down. I mean, I, we, we decided we are going to climb Ben Nevis. It's just, it's just a morning stroll, really. We thought we, would, we were going to have our picnic on the top. As it was, we miscalculated by about 15 or 20 minutes, and we were just short of the summit. And it's just a stroll, basically, Ben Nevis. Unless you go up the other face. If you go up the other face, well, that's serious. I mean, that's a serious climb and a dangerous climb. So, um, 
So you want to know which is the best, easiest, safest way to climb Ben Nevis. Well, I think this uh, metaphor of of climbing a mountain is a, a suitable. It's a suitable metaphor for for aiming for the summit of liberation. That if if we decide in our life that there are things truly worthy, there is this which could be realised. There is this possibility. And there are also many distractions. Uh, It's very easy to be impressed by things, to be tempted by things that are not truly worthy of our, our commitment. So just as with uh, climbing a mountain, you say, well, you know, I'm not just Ben Nevis, which is true, you can do in the morning, but if you say like a real mountain, like like um, Mount Everest, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, well, you've got to do some serious training. You prepare, there's this thing, preparation. You can't just say, well, I'm going to go off and climb Mount Everest. You can't do that. Well, you can, but that's very foolish. So we have the sense of the goal, but there's also the sense of the preparation that's needed for the goal. So having a clear idea of the goal, not mistaking the idea for the goal as the real thing, but then also appreciating the place for preparing ourselves. So you're going to do some serious mountain climbing, well, then you've got to build up physically. You might think, well, all I need to do is Exercise my legs more, but with mountain climbing, actually, what's needed a lot of what's needed is upper body muscle, real strength of the upper body for for pulling and studying maps and learning how to how to read the weather to be able to tell from the temperature, from the velocity of the wind, from the direction of the wind, to recognise the different types of ice. And if you put your pressure on this kind of ice, that's going to happen, and that type of ice can take your weight and, and how to secure your crampons and, and, and your pack. How much weight can you take anyway? How much can you carry? We might think you can carry a lot of weight, but what's the reality? Well, the reality, if you're going to do some serious mountain climbing, is you test yourself. You, you, put, you put your pack on and you go out for some day trips and you fill the pack up to however many kilos you think you're going to need and you, you actually get out there and you do some serious testing. And you start to get a feel. And, and this is in the body. This is not just reading about climbing Mount Everest. You do this, you do that. and That's certainly no good. We all know that. You've got to get out there and really in the body feel it. And so it is with the practice for liberation. If we, if we have this sense that there is a goal, that liberation from suffering is possible, yeah. And it's beyond happiness and unhappiness. It's not a small thing. Certainly most of the time we feel that happiness is it. I just like just a good dose of happiness. That would suit me fine. Well, if we're really convinced about that, well, then there's a way of, of going about finding it. But if we're not convinced about that, and rather our heart is drawn by the teachings of the Buddha and the great disciples, that that which is beyond happiness and unhappiness, that in which happiness and unhappiness are arising and ceasing, that this is a possibility, well, we do need to similarly prepare ourselves. There's the goal, and we need to prepare ourselves for it. And how do we prepare ourselves with it? for it? Well, this is what all the teachings are about. 
The Buddha could have just said, there is enlightenment, that's it. Believe in it or go for it. But he didn't, thankfully. He spent decades teaching about how to prepare ourselves for the journey. And we've all heard about these, these teachings on preparation, the teachings on dana, generosity. You say, well, what's that got to do with the goal? I just, want, I just want insight, I just want wisdom. Well, the Buddha certainly talked about dana very specifically. And sila, sila, keeping precepts, oh, that's, you know, that's pretty mundane and boring. I say, well, that's not the way the Buddha talked about it. Bhavana, well, now that's getting closer. You think, Bhavana, yeah, meditation. I'm very serious about meditation. So, well, the Buddha didn't just teach meditation. He didn't just teach mindfulness. You take mindfulness out of Buddhism, you've got a very powerful tool. Or you take concentration meditation out of Buddhism, you've got a very powerful tool. But if you embrace it in an unbalanced way, then it can certainly take you to some regrettable states. And so there are many examples, and as Buddhism spreads and these powerful techniques are used more and more uh, outside of Buddhism, uh, in the West, there are people, we all in our indulgent way like to pick and choose, I like this bit, I don't like that bit, and we'll just take what we want, and as this is happening more and more, well then there are more and more disasters. Uh, very sad to see how many people get deeply, deeply hurt, deeply damaged by embracing the spiritual disciplines without proper preparation. Like the number of skeletons that there are on Mount Everest. People who weren't perhaps properly prepared, didn't have sufficient skill uh, to make it to the summit and back down again. So there is this, uh, all the Buddhist teachings on right preparation. And and it's wise to pay attention to this. So... one of, the, uh, one of the biggest difficulties that people find in their meditation and their, in their assault for the summit of liberation is the painful, the painful contraction of selfishness. Me. Uh, me and my practice is so important. I invest all my energy in it, but then my failures, my successes, but then my successes become just a source of conceit, which becomes just a great obstruction. There's me and mine. The Buddha said there's a remedy for dealing with this painful condition of deluded self, and it's the cultivation of generosity and the cultivation of dharma. Sometimes Buddhist meditators look down on Asian people who are busy cultivating generosity and think, oh, they're not doing the real thing. Well, who knows? Maybe by the time of death, they've cultivated such a an easeful, relaxed relationship to their sense of self that when the body is obviously dissolving, maybe they are able to let go completely. And maybe we're so busy, obsessed with my practice and my insights and and my problems and my meditation that when we die, we're just busy worrying about me. Am I doing this properly? Am I dying properly? So the self-obsession is, uh, is a major obstruction to the spiritual life and certainly something that we need to equip ourselves with, prepare ourselves to be able to recognize what does selfishness feel like? What does it smell like? What does it look like? 
Where and when does it arise? Where do we find it in the body? Yeah, shoulders up around our ears. Yeah, clenched jaw. Yeah, sitting meditation. How often when you sit meditation you find that your jaw is clenched or your shoulders are held up. What is that? That's me. That's the shape of me. Yeah, the tension, the resistance to reality. Now it's not bad. And we've got to be careful, of course, as we approach it, because one of the symptoms of our me, the way our Western ego is shaped, is that it's, it's hypercritical and compulsively judgmental. And so even when we start to get a sense of this meanness and how unfortunate it is and how painful it is and how nice it would be to have a, a more relaxed attitude towards it, we just get more judgmental and then we contract around it even more and make it even worse. So... So sometimes we've got to just stop thinking about it and just do things that are generous. Just stop thinking about how to let go of ourselves and just be more generous. Pick up the phone and ring mum and talk to her. Make her feel good. We all, there's endless opportunities in the day to do random acts of kindness, small gestures of generosity. And maybe if we do do this, you start to feel for ourselves that what happens when we're generous, when we give, is the heart opens just a little bit. And this is the, what we cultivate with generosity, open-heartedness, relationship. Relationships with others, relationship with life. A free-flowing relationship with life is the direct consequence of generosity. And it's totally natural. You see, with children, children want to get one child wants to get to know another child. They go and give them something. Yeah. Or you want to, you know, a relationship has been wounded. You make a gift. Or you want to maintain a relationship. You know, Christmas is wonderful. I notice around this part of the country here in Northumberland, where, where for a lot of the year people don't have much to do with us, uh, uh, not terribly engaging, but then. Christmas and New Year, they make a point of, of greeting us at least or maybe giving gifts even. So it's a way of connecting, a way of easing the pain of isolation and selfishness. So if we don't address this and we start, and start embracing the spiritual exercises, the spiritual techniques, we can build up energy, but the result may be not what we're looking for and we just go even more out of balance than we were to start off with. So I I, uh, I really recommend um, this as a practice. And somebody was somebody that I correspond with was was telling me somebody who I've known for a few years now is and who used to be terribly concerned about their meditation practice and going on retreats and so on. He, he was telling me recently how he's had this major shift in his practice. He's he's really feeling good about it. What he's done is he's taken on acts of conscious generosity, and now when he goes to work. He always takes more than he needs for his lunch because he wants some that he can share with his co-workers. And so this is something that, this is preparation. If we want to go for the summit and be completely free from all conceit and all ignorance, then we don't want to be carrying this unnecessary burden of self-obsession. And so we prepare ourselves with generosity. It's not a small thing. You know, we, you build up some energy and get really intense 
and then you're taking yourself too seriously, it gets in the way. Big time. Mm. Similarly with sila, with uh, integrity. So dana, sila, generosity and integrity, the cultivation of integrity. My, uh, my favourite image with this, which I've mentioned many, many times before, but I've mentioned again tonight because it's very graphic and really, really um, goes to the point, uh, an image that um, was shared by my dear friend, the late Venerable Miyokoni, who was a, uh, the head of a Zen, Rinzai Zen monastery, well, two in London and one in Luton, trained for many years in Japan. And before that, she was a geologist and I remember her talking about this process of transforming the wild passions of greed, aversion and delusion, this raw energy that keeps hurting us and hurting others, the transformation of it. In our practice, we're not talking about getting rid of it. We're talking about transforming it so that it serves Dhamma, serves the way, doesn't serve selfishness. And this process of transformation, she talked about the need for an utterly, utterly firm container and the example she gave was the, the transformation of carbon dust into diamonds. Of course, diamonds are precious, something really worth having. Carbon dust, who needs it? Just the dirty black mess. Well, so it is with our wild passions. Greed, aversion and delusion all over the place. But the transformation of that into, into wisdom and compassion... Well, there are laws that govern this, just as there are laws that govern the transformation of carbon dust into diamonds. There's got to be tremendous heat, tremendous pressure, but what's integral to this is the container. If there's any flaws in the container, if there's any cracks in the container, you, you end up with an explosion and you end up with a terrible mess. And so it is in the spiritual life. Many times, over and over again, people... Embrace the spiritual disciplines, build up the pressure, build up the heat, tremendous zeal, tremendous enthusiasm. I'm going to crack it. I'm going to get enlightened. And, and really, it's uh, uh, too fast, too far, too deep, too soon. If the sense of self-respect that comes with integrity is not there, the direct consequence of a life of integrity, which is what, living by the five precepts is about. The direct consequence of a life of integrity, body and speech, is self-respect, self-trust. You know you can trust yourself. Just as we we value an honest friend, somebody we know we can trust, somebody we know is not going to repeat our our deep secrets that we shared with them, somebody's not going to betray us when we're falling apart, somebody's not going to abandon us or hurt us when we're down and out, how precious that is to have such a wonderful friend that we know we can totally trust. Well, if we have that relationship with ourselves, that is a, something really precious. That's a, that's a massively precious resource. Something we can really depend on. If we can depend on ourselves, well... The reality is that if we don't live a life of integrity, if we're not impeccable with regards to action of body and speech and mind, then we don't have that container. And the dynamic, the transformation of the wild passions is not going to take place. That's why we 
Over and again, we see, you look at the traditional Buddha images, you see the Buddha sitting on a, on a lotus flower. The lotus is a symbol for moral integrity, uh, this, the, that which is beautiful, which grows up out of the swamp. Uh, the lotus grows up out of the filth and stinky swamp, and there's this beautiful flower, it's, or a lily in this country. And this is a symbol that the Buddha sits on the lotus because... The aspiration for liberation, the inclination to free the heart at the very core from all delusion, that aspiration has to be founded on integrity and the beauty and the radiance of integrity. And so this is a really essential part of our preparation if we're, we're wanting to uh, go for the summit uh, of liberation, then we need to prepare our body and speech in this way. Dana, sila and pavana. And, and pavana likewise, a clear understanding, a clear good education of what's involved with pavana. Where, the, where, our, where our attention and awareness become tools that we work with. We apply these tools in a particular way at a particular time for a particular purpose. Uh, now, pavana is not just blindly picking up some meditation technique we read in a book or that some inspiring guru uh, told us we should do. You know, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of care. These are very powerful tools. And so as we use them, we use them with mindfulness, with sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Embodied sensitivity, and this is, again, very important. Pavana, these meditation tools, a lot of uh, Westerners will just... Give me a technique so can I, I can spiritualize my ego and get enlightened and become the wonderful person that I want to be. Mm. And you can be slumped against your desk reading all about these meditation techniques on the internet or whatever, and you can know all sorts of information about them, but that's not the same thing as sitting there and applying the, the skills. You, know, you can know about something you like you can read a recipe book and you can know about baking something but only when you're actually doing the baking do you know how to mix the ingredients do you know how to put the tray in the oven without burning your arm on the oven door in our kitchen so we learn from experience and so the cultivation the actual engaging of attention and awareness and being able to assess, to be able to, just, just as if, as I said, like with the metaphor before of climbing a mountain, so how much energy do you put forth at what stage? You know, how do you pace yourself? The greedy, arrogant mind wants to just forge ahead and say, you're not going to have any energy for later on. So you've got to learn how to pace yourself. Those who've gone before us know, say, take it steady, be careful, be humble, be modest. Mm-hmm. Go gradually, regularly. Mm-hmm. So, examining, investigating, getting to know our attention, getting to know our awareness, expanded awareness, contracted awareness, when to concentrate, when to relax. And these tools of pavana we need to prepare ourselves with. And from then on, once we've prepared ourselves, or as we prepare ourselves, as we prepare ourselves, it's really important that we, we 
develop the ability to assess for ourselves where are we at. Uh, a lot of a lot of people um, get intimidated, just as we can be intimidated by the dazzling images of the consumer society that we live in and end up spending money on all sorts of stuff that is pretty pointless. Well, similarly in the spiritual world, we can get dazzled by those who really look like they know what they're talking about. They're powerful and they, they present a good image. And we can get dazzled by them. Maybe we, you know, we're not very confident and we can get really impressed. And so it's very important from the very beginning to be checking ourselves and to see, does the teacher... Does the teacher, does the tradition, does the teaching allow us, encourage us to see for ourselves where we're at? How much meditation should I be doing? Not just following what the book says, but feeling as we go along. And if you don't want to meditate, don't feel bad about that. It's it's really, really sad thing to see so many Buddhists these days in the West. Asian Buddhists don't generally feel guilty if they don't meditate. They don't make a problem out of it. But for many Westerners, it's the way Buddhism has developed so far. A lot of people, they feel guilty for not meditating. Well, some people shouldn't be meditating. So don't feel bad if you don't want to meditate. There are many other things that we can be cultivating besides concentration meditation techniques. Certainly, going too far, too fast, too deep can take us somewhere where we don't want to go and maybe even difficult to get back from. Maybe we even fall over the edge into a crevasse and that would be really regrettable. So if we don't want to meditate, yeah, look at that, not wanting to meditate. What is it? Is it lazy? Or is it an intuition that actually right now what I need to be doing is just cultivating kindness? That's what I need to be doing. You know, a bit short on the kindness front. Feeling, always feeling sorry for myself, grumpy, complaining, miserable, get that I am. I think I'll just, just upgrade my kindness skills for a while. Maybe that's a very good idea. You know, just being kind, you know, being generous. I, was, uh, I remember being very inspired when my very early years living with Ajahn Chah, maybe my first year, second year, I'm not sure, reading some notes of some translation. Those early years I couldn't speak Thai myself. And, but uh, anyway, this uh, reported teaching from Ajahn Chah where he was telling the monks that he said, even if you don't meditate at all, if all you do is keep their precepts and live mindfully, then by the time you die, you could be Sotapanna. Even if you don't meditate at all, what a relief. Uh, and my meditation was rubbish and... And I was feeling guilty about I was a failure because I wasn't meditating well. And yeah. meditation is not technique is not the point. That's not what the Buddha was talking about. Mindfulness, the Buddha was talking about, and to the degree that meditation helps mindfulness, then we engage the meditation. But we do it in a way that's not too forceful, not too greedy, not too arrogant, according to our ability. We can exaggerate the place of meditation. But if we do decide to engage meditation techniques, then to do it very cautiously, very patiently, very gently. I think of meditation as like, it's like looking for your glasses. 
Have you? I don't know those of you that have got poor eyesight. You're looking for your glasses. Well, you haven't got your glasses on. You're looking for your glasses. How are you going to find them? Well, that's it. That's finding right view. Trying to find right view is like looking for your glasses. You've already got poor eyesight. You already can't see where you're going. So we're bound to make mistakes. So if we're too arrogant, too greedy, too willful, then we're just going to fall over more. So we need to slow down and go careful as we go forward with our effort. And, and be willing, be willing to make mistakes as we go along and to learn from them. And also to be willing to assess where, how much study we need. You know, study and practice go together. You, know, you can read all the books and you can study a little Abhidhamma and you can, this is a dosa mula jitta and you, you can read all about dosa mula jitta and a dosa mula jitta is a, an akusala, unwholesome mind state that's, that's arisen out of an unwholesome mind of ill will and, and that's all very fascinating. But when you're reading about that in the, you know, as a book, you're sitting there slumped over bad body posture reading about it, very fascinating yeah, that's totally different from when you're feeling angry. Or you can study a little bit of psychology. You can, you can be reading about psychology, looking at your laptop there again, totally slumped over, reading about, you know, oh yes, is, uh, anger is basically, that's just a denial of sadness. And, you know, when you get through the anger, you find that behind that's all these uncried tears and ears. And, well, that's all very fascinating and, and may well be very true. But reading a little bit of psychology or reading a little bit about the Abhidharma is totally different from engaging the passions, which is practice. You know. I'm reminded of a, an occasion where Ajahn Chah was, um, he was in the monastery Tamsang Pet and sitting talking to, the, to some people there and it's a, it's a recording, a tape recording we have and and he's talking there, he says, oh, people think they're meditating when they're sitting on a cushion. That's not the real practice. Sitting on a cushion is not the real practice. That's not the real thing. The real practice is when the, the passions impact the heart. That's, that's the real practice. Are we there for it? Are we ready? Have we been prepared? Have we been prepared? Have we been rightly prepared when that energy flares up? Because if we've been rightly prepared, then there's an opportunity for real power now, you know, real cultivation, real development, real letting go. Maybe some of you have read those Zen stories of the monk who's out there sweeping the leaves and, and one day he sweeps the leaves and a, and a pebble hits the bamboo and boom, he's enlightened. And they go, oh, God, I wish I belonged to that tradition, that sounds great. You know, not like us, you know, all this boring stuff that we have to put up with. You know. Well, what they don't tell you about in those Zen stories is the, the hours, the days, the weeks, the months, the years that that Zen monk had been sweeping the leaves and not making a problem out of it or sitting on his cushion and learning to not make a problem out of it. The utter excruciating boredom of practice and not making a problem out of it or the despair and not making a problem out of it, the sadness and not making a problem out of it, the greed and not making a problem out of it, the passions and not making a problem out of it, that's the training. We read the books and we know about the practice, but the practice is something else altogether. If you don't have, you don't have guts, then you can't practice. That's why walking meditation is so good. 
That's why doing physical exercise is so essential for practice. Slumped over your laptop reading about dosa mulajeta or, or psychology is, is the earliest stage of preparation. That's like reading the maps about Mount Everest. That's not even trying your pack out. You know, the practice is building up the muscles, uh, the spiritual muscles, 